0: Dr. John Meyer was named the fifth president of Hodges University in December 2017. In his more than 20 years of public and private education experience, Dr. Meyer has served as a professor, chair, dean, and an executive vice president of academic affairs. His business expertise includes managerial consulting, owning and operating private automotive ventures, and conducting corporate trainings. Since taking the helm as president, He has led efforts to make transferring to and from Hodges University a seamless process by structuring course numbers to match the state system. As one of the authors of the Workforce Now series of research papers, his vision for the university will expand to include programs that would award professional workforce credentials and enable career laddering. Good morning, John. It's good to see
1: you. Good morning, Tessa. Good to see you, too.
0: So tell us, um, how are things going at Hodges? I'm ready to
1: talk talent with you. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm always ready to talk talent. Um, things are going well. I, I uh, We were just so much to talk about. On June 1, we brought back uh, physical therapist assistant students, and as far as I know, <laughs> we were the first university in the state of Florida to bring students back live and on campus. Um, this was an interesting thing because the as you know it's a licensure program and you can't uh, complete the program and get sit for the exam and get your license if you haven't done the requisite lab hours right so you have to which means that you're in very close proximity to other at least one other person maybe two or three other people so we were figured out how do we do this the students themselves were asking to come back they didn't want their graduation delayed and so we were able to uh, put them in our new building in in a much larger Space. We were able to, you know, sort of uh, physically distance each of the, the uh, uh, PTA tables. We put the students in small groups. They're all in hospital gowns and masks and all of those things. And, uh, and God bless them, they've been doing it. And uh, <laughs> we started a second cohort, and they're in, doing the same kind of thing. And uh, it's working out great. So then we brought nursing students back, the baccalaureate, the RN students back, um, they, they're facing a similar kind of thing, can't get in the hospitals to do clinical, so they're they're doing that clinical exposure on in our simulation lab. So um, they've been back. They've been back since July, and we're still moving forward figuring on a fall, you know, a normal, whatever that means, fall start. Uh, the challenge, of course, is, and I, I think this is a thing that's nationwide, the challenge, of course, remains enrollment. People are, um, you know, confused about what to do unsure about what to do um, do they do they want to commit to a two year or a four year program um, are they going to be able to keep their employment are they going to be able to keep their unemployment are they you know there's too many variables and and so uh, that the enrollment right now remains something of a challenge
0: yeah we're definitely hearing that across the board and and I, I don't I don't know that we're going to have the answers anytime soon but I do think it's uh, pretty interesting to think about sort of your personal experience and, and you know, getting to the role that you're in now at Hodges University. And um, I was wondering if maybe you'd be willing to kind of share sort of your your experience in post-secondary education, so education beyond high school, because I think it's a story that a lot of people could relate to.
1: Um, sure. I, it's not a particularly – uh, glamorous story, but, um, you know, cut me off anytime you need me to, to stop. And, you know, as you well know, my favorite topic is me, so I can go on at length. Um, so I went to a college, uh, to a high school that, where the curriculum was aimed at college prep. And it was a small school. Um, there were only 33 people in my class. And, uh, you know, graduation day, 32 of the 33 went off to Ivy League schools, and then there was me. And I ended up going to, um, so this was up in the Northeast, and I ended up going to the local community college to study automotive technology, which I did. I loved cars and loved the whole idea of, you know, getting dirty and all that stuff. And uh, finished all my automotive courses. Naturally didn't see the need to finish my degree, the the academic courses. So left, I, I was what they call a, um, a lever with marketable skills. So I left and went to work in the car repair industry and, uh, did that for something like 20 years and uh, grew into ultimately having my own business and a couple of different iterations of uh, automotive-related stuff. So, you know, uh, car repair, towing and recovery, used car sales, those kinds of things. Um, and decided to move to Florida back in the late 90s, did, sold the business there, uh, moved to Florida, and then realized that I needed to get so I'm in my mid-30s at this point. I realized that I needed to get to finish college. I needed to get a college degree. Specifically, I needed a bachelor's degree because I found myself in a situation where if I wanted to leverage out of that industry, which I desperately did want to do, uh, the only way I was going to do that was with some post-secondary credential. And so I ended up at uh, International College, which was the what Hodges University was called before we became Hodges University, um, earned a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, went on uh, subsequently to earn a doctorate and uh, launched a new career in higher ed, which ultimately brought me he- to the here and now. I can fill in any of that that you need me to. But the, the point is that the um, I'm probably the poster child for the idea that all post-secondary education is good post-secondary education, and that no post-secondary education is necessarily mutually exclusive to anything else. So the lessons one learns when one is studying, you know, front-end alignment later can be applied where you might not think they could be. That a lot of those skills do, in fact, transfer. And it's up to the individual, I think, uh, to to make that translation for himself or herself and to help other people with that, with that concept.
0: So... That I'm curious. I'm going to dig in a little bit on that story. What was it like to return sure. to higher ed um, in your mid 30s?
1: Oh well, um, I was petrified of higher ed when I was in my teens. I absolutely resolutely did not want to go to college. The the vocational thing part was fine because that was in a shop with cars and a lift and tools and people saying you know questionable things and. Uh, doing questionable things and shouting and all of that—that that part was fine. But college as a concept was—I was, was not—I don't think I was emotionally prepared for that uh, at all. And then, so then later coming back into it as an adult, I was initially, as you might imagine, um, concerned. I was concerned that I wouldn't be up to the task. I was concerned that I wouldn't understand what was going on. I was concerned that, uh, you know, working and having children and a family and all these things, that I wouldn't have enough time to do my homework or do my assignments or effectively study. Um, at that time, that computers had become a thing, and I didn't know anything about a computer. Um, and so I was – in fact, I said to people that these things are going away. They're a flash in the pan. You know, no one's going to use these things. So I had to sort of um, get over that and get into it. What I found, though, a very, very quickly – was that I was actually infinitely better prepared for college than I thought I was. And it wasn't the high school preparation. I mean, some of that was. But it was the intervening 14 years or whatever it was or 20 years or whatever it was in in, in my life that had prepared me for some of these things. So I remember taking uh, an accounting class in my first or second term. I had struggled with accounting when I was younger, um, And suddenly it all made sense. i run a business. I understood the concepts of accounting. What I didn't know was the terminology. So it was another one of those opportunities to make translations. Once I did that, uh, then it all made perfect sense, so much so that my baccalaureate degree is actually in accounting. So I think that, that, again, it's incumbent on the individual. You've got to be able to take, to understand that, that all of your experiences, all of one's experiences in life have merit, they have value, they shape who you are, and they all apply. They're, I mean, it's not like there's millions and millions and millions of concepts. There are probably, you know, three dozen or something core concepts that relate to all industries. And if you're successful in one industry, you can leverage those concepts to the next industry. That is just a question of learning the specifics.
0: What an important lesson. I think that that's a message that a lot of people need to hear, especially right now, is I assume a lot of people are trying to figure out how to – Remain relevant in the workforce. How to re, You know, what does reskilling or upskilling mean? So that I, I'm. I wonder how. How does that sort of play into now your role in leading um, a, a, a university in terms of you know what you what you all are prioritizing?
1: So that's a really really good question. And um, you, as you might imagine, you know, we have our cabinet meetings, and and um, this is a concept. That has dominated them for some time, and I think that for us, for the population that we serve, and for the um, sort of our mission and our our way of looking at the world, um, I think that the the an important future that higher education has not really broadly examined. Not I mean, this is not like a thing all over the country. Is this idea of What, you know, how did we get to the place that we are and why is it, where is it written? I mean, I know where it's written, but where should it, where, you know, why is it written that we have to behave the way that we do? So, for example, if you want to get a bachelor's degree, that's defined as 120 credit hours. And so a fair question would be, well, what's a credit hour? Well, that's 50 minutes of instruction times 15 weeks or 750 minutes. So three credit hours, a standard three credit hour class, is 2,250 minutes of instruction. Uh, I I get that. I can write that. I I know that in my sleep. I dream about that. My only problem is I really don't know what that means because 2,250 minutes of instruction can vary depending on all kinds of things and what you classify instruction to be. So I think a fairer question to ask is uh, that higher ed should be asking is, you know, is that a relevant metric anymore? Is that a relevant concept anymore? And maybe the answer is yes. And maybe for certain disciplines or certain licensure programs or where there are certain state requirements, maybe that's a very valid concept, and we stick to that. But maybe in other areas, um, it, it, that might be a, a concept that's a little past its sell-by date. We, we might want to start looking at alternative ways to quantify what um, learning means, what learning has taken place, what skills someone's been able to absorb, That's sort of part A. And part B, and this is the part that's certain to get me in trouble. Part B is, you know, is it necessary to include, is it necessary to include the liberal arts in something that, that calls itself higher education? That's a different question from is it valuable? But they are two, those are two separable concepts in my view. So every baccalaureate degree by, by definition includes at least 30 credit hours of general education coursework, and in the state of Florida, it's 36. Um, in fact, in most states, it's, 30, it's 36. An associate's degree is either 15 or 36, depending on which associate's degree you got. Uh, is that a necessary prerequisite for success in the rest of the academic discipline? And so I think that the way that question gets answered is maybe. For so for some disciplines, yes other disciplines maybe not and and so I think we're going to start to see over time uh, a division in what higher education programs look like some of them are going to be delineated in this thing we call a credit hour some of them are going to be have to be on campus because they there's some state requirement but I think there is plenty of room for some alternative stuff some disruptive stuff that hasn't necessarily been advanced uh, before and so we are working on a couple or three different, um, iterations of that kind of programming.
0: That is, that's really interesting, and I agree. We need disruption, right? Our lives have been disrupted, and and the world of higher ed, the perception of higher ed, was already being scrutinized significantly. Um, but we know that you know the vast majority of jobs, uh, you know, moving forward are going to, of well-paying jobs are going to require some sort of credential. Passed a high school diploma, um, so I think it, that's a it's an interesting concept. I want to give you a chance because you did say something somewhat controversial, which I love um, about the liberal arts piece. Can you can you talk about that just a little bit more?
1: Sure. So um, among my, I have a, as you know, a rather lengthy commute, and um, so I. If I'm not making phone calls in the car or otherwise working, I will listen to, um, I'm going to date myself here, books on tape. My car is not quite that old, but it does have a CD player, so I listen to books on CD. And I go to the library and I get books that I listen to, and I listen to all kinds of stuff. But among my favorite things are these lectures that they're typically a half an hour long, and they're on a, you can get them on just about any subject known to man. Um, and, and it's really cool you, you know I'm in the car for an hour so I can get two lectures in if I don't have a phone call uh, on my way in or on my way home. Mostly what I listen to is stuff that relates to the liberal arts. It's philosophy or psychology or economics or things that are um, that are the sort of broader questions that advances mankind you know the deeper philosophical questions. I've got a physics, lecture series coming up uh, in my queue. So these are the, you know, but to me, this is in a weird way. It's a, it's a, it's both a learning pursuit and a recreational pursuit. So I don't mean for even an instance, instant to devalue or take away from the liberal arts. I think there's absolutely a need for, um, for them and they do make the idea behind the liberal arts education is it makes you broadly educated and makes you a better citizen. I, I get all of that. But I also get that we live in a world that is filled with disruption with artificial intelligence and Ubers and dreadful electric automobiles and, uh, you know, internet of things and all of this stuff that's happening at light speed around us. And so the fair question for, for me, I think is, do we really expect people to step out of all of that and, and commit four years to a degree? Um, do we expect them to read textbooks that were, by the time they're written and published, they're arguably out of date? Do we expect them to do all these things in the same way we did in 1950 and in 1850 and in 1750 and in 1250? You know, and I, so I, I really question whether that's a fair concept anymore. If you want to study the liberal arts, I think we need to have them. I'm not suggesting that they go away, and I think that they're valuable. But I also think that that adds, at, at a minimum, that's adding 25% to the four-year degree. So you can take this same concept and now it's three years. And if you eliminate some of the electives, which typically tend to, now, well, now you're down to two years. So you see where I'm going with this, that I think that there is room to distill these topics down. Part of the disruption might be to distill some of these topics down to more essential bites and deliver education in these, in these essential bites. It wouldn't preclude someone from also, you know, ingesting the liberal arts this way, but, um, I, I have some concerns about that as a requirement because I think we're, we, as a as an industry, are alienating a large percentage of the population that would otherwise avail itself of uh, university level training.
0: Yeah. So you're, I think, what you're getting at is is jobs, right? And what are some of the competent What are the competencies that are needed? And that's really important yes. because I know, you know, looking just at our region, um, you know, sixty-eight percent of working-age adults do. I'm sorry, fifty-eight percent. Pardon my my mistake there. You're so good with numbers. I'm not an accountant, but there you go. So I wrote it down, uh, and I'll get you about 58% of the uh, working age adults in our region age 25 to 64 do not have a credential beyond high school. And we know about 20% of those are are folks that have some college and no degree, which obviously means that something didn't work for them to finish. And so if we're really going to be able to move the needle on those on those numbers, I I suppose we really do need to look at Career pathways. I mean, we have found, and I, and I'm curious what your thoughts are. Uh, that uh, adults who are in that working age population, they're 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 looking for a career path and a better life, and you know, being trained for a job in higher ed, I think, is really. It sounds like that's what you're getting at. Um, but it, but you know, adult learners are really a huge portion of the of the people that I think we need to tap into.
1: So I mean I completely agree, and that is really the our core student is that student that you just described. Um, it always has been for the 30 years of our existence. That's always been the population that we have tried to serve. Um, the it's a very complicated issue, and I think we could probably spend all day talking about it. But I, th- maybe if we try to break it down into some um, tracks. So there's probably some number of people uh, in that 58% that you've identified. There's probably some number of people who are who have some fear, as I did, um, that attaches to going back to school. Maybe they didn't do particularly well in high school. Maybe they struggle with math and English going through high school. And of course, the first thing that anybody tells you when you go to enroll in college is, or apply to enroll in college or university as well. You know, you're going to have to take English 101. And you, well, if you didn't do very well in high school, maybe that's a non-starter. So a path there is to uh, is to set that part aside at least in the beginning and allow some of those students or people who would be interested in that to pursue a credential maybe it's a certificate not a degree uh, but to pursue a credential that it did not require exposure to those things so most people if they have an interest in a given um, topic and let's call it information technology or bookkeeping or whatever it's going to be, it doesn't matter. Um, if they're interested in that, we'll probably do very well in that and take to the coursework very well. That would have the net effect of improving one's self-esteem when it comes to the question, can I be successful at this? And then I can begin to see that, ah, yes, I can be successful at this. And then so then if I want to go ahead and get the degree, and we're still defining it in the terms that we talked about earlier... Then that English or math class becomes less daunting. So that that would be one approach. The other, uh, or one population. The other population might be uh, people like I was, who were uh, certain in when they were in their late teenage years, because you know everything, of course. They were certain that they knew what they wanted to pursue for a career. Um, but the, my premise there is, how could you possibly know that? We've got industries today that that spring up almost every day. Things that didn't exist six months ago suddenly are employing hundreds of thousands of people. Well, how are you going to know when you're 18 or 15 or 19 or 25 what you want to do with the rest of your life? Which, by the way, your working life is probably going to be take you to 70 or 75 if you're relatively young today. It, it, you know, you're not going to get out at 65. So uh, the probability that you're going to know what you want to do, train for that, and never train again is essentially zero. So I, I think we have to have a better ability, a better method, a better mechanism for helping people understand that simply because I trained to do X it doesn't foreclose the option to train to do Y, nor does it foreclose the option to transfer some of the credit from X to Y or some of that experience from X to Y. This is not something that higher education does particularly well, and, and I think it's in another one of those areas where um, there's room for disruption and room for improvement. But that would be a way to, to um, potentially appeal to, to that population, because I think for many of those people, they'll say things like, well, I can't afford to start all over, or I'm making X number of dollars a year now, and if I, if I go into a new field, I start at the bottom, and I'll make half X. So we have to find a way to bridge that. Gap. i mean to me those would be the t- and then the third one and this is probably a, a big one all over the country but i know it's an, a, an area of concern for us in this region and that's the the entire population for whom English is not either a language at all or a native language and so if English language skills are uh, an impediment to success i can't tell you the number of people that i have spoken with and i know personally that I've interacted with over the years who are well educated, um, coming from another country and, and they were educated in a language other than English. They grew up in a, speaking a language other than English. But they come here, if we don't recognize or accept that credential or they're, they're, they find themselves in a position where the employment they would be trained for requires proficiency in English, well, that they're, they're sort of at a real disadvantage and trying to gain that employment, and we often find that these people are working well below their capacity. So we have to find that's an economic development issue, if not a human development issue. We have to find ways to, and we have a few ideas there too, but ways to overcome that hurdle. So those would be the three biggies, I think, for Southwest Florida.
0: That's a lot, and I I could probably dive into each of those things um we could probably go on and on. I think you're also, so it sounds like you're sort of alluding to this idea that there has to be some relationship between higher ed and employers really in order to overcome some of these challenges.
1: I don't see that it's any other way. I think that is, that is, yeah, the essential um, element. I think there, there, I mean, certainly we have uh, relationships with employers, certainly all of the, institutions of higher ed in our region maintain similar kinds of relationships but it may they may not we may need to look at, at relationships that are a little bit deeper so if i can tell you a story as a by way of illustration um, there's a i went to i was a speaker at the national council for workforce education about five years ago and this was in this event took place in Pittsburgh in October or something. It was good. And um, um, the a vice president from Harley-Davidson was there speaking. And um, what he said was they're based in Minnesota, I believe, but in the upper Midwest. And um, he was going on at length about the difficulties in attracting uh, a professional workforce to, to uh, assemble motorcycles and other products. And, to, to, and the, to him, this was, uh, you know, an economic development issue and so on. But it was also a quality control issue because if we couldn't, if we couldn't get the workforce to do simpler, simple kinds of tasks and do them reliably well, then it was going to be a problem for the finished product. And so when the, we dug into that a little bit, what he came up with is that a lot of the people that they attempted to hire couldn't read a ruler or couldn't read a micrometer. Um, and that these are people that had a high school education. In some cases, these were people that had, you know, associate's degrees, and they couldn't read a ruler reliably, and they couldn't read a micrometer reliably. And once they figured, so just, you know, out of every 20 applicants, maybe they get one who could pass this test. So it really put a crimp in their ability to hire. And he went to the local community college, put this on the table, so they'd had a relationship once they discovered what the core issue was. So then, then the college developed a program to – to ensure that people could read rulers and micrometers and other sort of basic measuring instruments. And then the number of eligible hires went way, way up because people would show up then with this ability when they hadn't done it before. So the point of the story is industry didn't know what was what was wrong until it figured it out. The community college would have had no way of knowing what was wrong unless and until industry told them. And then it required a level of trust and willingness to work together in order for the college to go out shall we say, on a limb, create this program uh, specifically for the, the local manufacturers. So, I mean, that's the idea there. It, 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 when you can get these closer relationships, you get better outcomes.
0: Yeah, and what a great message for small businesses, right? The You know, our communities yeah. are really built on small business, and they often don't have the time to – they feel like they don't have the time to wait or to get involved in those kinds of relationships. So do you have advice for a small business that's interested in growing that that's having those types of challenges?
1: Well, I would say um, that I guess the paternal advice would be, um, I know that many small businesses express some level of uh, competitive fear, right? So if I invest in, uh, this kind of a training, or if I identify this kind of a problem and I bring that to a, a, a more regional awareness, um, I might be helping my competitors get people that I would otherwise get, or I might be training people for or paying to train people, you know, that my competitors will ultimately get. Um, and that's a, I mean, it, there's, there's, I'm not saying that's not legitimate. It is. On the other hand, if if that's the mentality and that's the position that everyone embraces, then nobody gets ahead. So I think that um, it's probably – small business probably knows many more of these things than the larger businesses do because there's so many more smaller businesses, and they're typically uh, looking to hire people that, are, that have to do more than one thing, right? We can't distill the task down to a simple uh, – the job description tends to be broader in a smaller business, right? So if they're identifying things that they know and they can bring those things to us or to us being higher ed, Uh, or us being Hodges university in particular then then i think we can incorporate um, training for those things into whatever programs a degree program or certificate program or corporate training or whatever it is to help address that concern a way to do that without necessarily giving away the store if you're if that's still a concern is to join an advisory committee so um, everybody has advisory committees uh, all colleges and universities and technical colleges, and all those things. And what they really look to the advisory committee to do is advise, right? So tell me what's going on in the industry. Tell me if my curriculum is on point. Tell me if there are things that I should be doing. Tell me if there are things that I should forbear from doing. And um, that's the opportunity for a, someone in any business, small or, or medium or large, to um, provide some input and help train people for that industry. We're building a new marketing degree, and marketing and branding degree is really uh, it's really good, and it's unique. And uh, we did that really by leveraging local people who, who are in that industry, and we got some really good insight.
0: Yeah, I think that that's really important, and I appreciate your mention of the fear of uh, giving competition a leg up when you engage in that way. Um, I do think that that's an issue and I think but I do think that really no problems big the big challenges that we face in our communities across the country can be solved without people working together. Um, I mm-hmm. think collaboration is definitely the key to that and so I know I know we've done a lot of work here locally to try to engage businesses. you've been at the forefront of that with the workforce now um, research and the and, and really sort of diving into this concept of micro credentialing and you yourself, obviously stacked credentials when you started in mechanics and worked your way up. How do you see that playing into, are you seeing any movement from the higher ed side toward that idea of earning smaller credentials and, um, that meet workforce and employer needs in order to continue with like a lifelong learning model to adapt to the ever-changing world that you described.
1: So that's also a very interesting question. And I think this is one of those things that, and I was trying to think of a parallel, but it's, I don't have enough coffee in me yet, but it's one of those things that um, everybody wants to talk about. Everybody universally thinks is probably a good idea, but that no one really to date, has embraced. Uh, from my perspective, part of that issue might be to quantify what a micro credential is, because anybody can—it's uh, like the wild west, right? You can create any kind of thing that you want. You can call it a micro credential, or you can put a badge—you uh, know—you get five badges and you get one micro credential for you, whatever it might be. I'm being a little facetious, but there, there, uh, because there is not a uniform definition, and because there's not a uniform understanding. Um, I think the, while the concept is great, I think the execution has been less than great. And if industry isn't embracing it and doesn't know what it is and know how to value it, then I think we're going nowhere. Having said that, the, what really what a micro-credential speaks to is simply sort of a third-party verification of a given skill or given ability. So it, it is it is the icing on the cupcake. What really matters is the cupcake. Right? So, if I can, if I have IT skills, if I have bookkeeping skills, I have them, and I all I really need to get an employer to recognize is that I have them. Now, if the employer looks for a degree, uh, okay. If the employer looks for a license, okay. If the employer looks for an industry certification, okay. Uh, if he or she looks for a a, a micro credential, okay. But we just have to make sure that we're all looking, that we're providing a thing that the employers are looking for. And I'm, my fear or my concern or my level of, um, anxiety perhaps around micro-credentialing is that it sort of caught fire really quickly, but was being executed in so many different ways that I don't know if anybody really knows what it is. And as a result, I'm not sure there's, that anybody really ascribes any value to it.
0: Yeah. And it's a it's a big shift, right? You started off this conversation with, you know, what is a credit and what is the value of a credit? Right. And I think that that's really the same concept. There almost has to be a, a, a cultural shift between education and employers and business and economic development to accept something similar to the way we have previously accepted credits. And I know I personally see all the time and hear – You know, employers posting positions that, that the minimum requirement is a bachelor's degree. But really there are, there are folks that have the skills according to the job rec that could do the job without a bachelor's degree. So, so there's a huge shift. Yeah, there's a huge shift that you're talking about. And I, I sure appreciate your huge, you know, worldview perspective of all of this. So, um, I want to talk to you. You mentioned this idea. And I think that this is a growing issue in Florida and across the country of of individuals who um, English is not their first language and i I wondered if you could talk a little bit about some of the equity imperatives at Hodges and how you're addressing the changing population and their needs for education here in in the region.
1: Well, sure, so we are um, a federally designated Hispanic serving institution forty four percent of our student population identifies as Hispanic. so clearly for us this is a uh, an area of importance. We have and have had since the beginning um, a really robust ESL program the but there are challenges uh, like everywhere else in higher ed there are challenges with that there are um, uh, without the risk of putting too fine of a point on it there are some uh headwinds that face people who would wish to come to this country to come here to study or to come here to live uh, may not be the most friendly set of policies that we've ever had uh, around that certainly there's a level of fear and anxiety um there so the it's one thing to offer a program and it's in and have it be a good program and, and everybody knows it's a good program it's an entirely different thing for people to be able to avail themselves of it, number one, or number two, be willing to come forward and avail themselves of it. So if I'm sort of hiding under the radar a little bit, um, I may not want to make myself more visible. I may not want to file official papers and those kinds of things. So we need to find another way to reach that population. But, But I know to just to a moral certainty, and I know it just in my own interactions with people that there are um, and they're, I mean, they census data to support this. There are probably tens of thousands of people just in the five-county region who have come from um, someplace else in the world, primarily, let's say, South America, Cuba, and they're going to be coming with baccalaureate degrees. And, by the way, the educational systems in these countries are really good. They are not – Cuba has an exceptionally good, as an example, post-secondary program. Uh, and reputation for its post-secondary programs. But if we're not going to recognize those degrees and if we're not going to recognize those credentials and if we're not going to, um, if English is a prerequisite, which in most cases it is, for employment and success, then, then we, we, we have a, a duty, an obligation, a moral obligation to help identify these people and help provide a pathway for them to succeed. So I think that can look like a lot of different things. That can look like simply learning English which is what we do now. Uh, It could look like um, perhaps awarding credit for the degree from another country and allowing, using that as a tool to get into a graduate program. And maybe as part of that graduate program, uh, English is, you know, the the requirement to learn English goes along with that. So that then the student would leave with both command of the English language and a US issued uh, graduate degree um, or any number of other combinations. We have uh, developed and will be launching by October, and I'm pushing people to do this for September, a, 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 a nine-module uh, online self-paced ESL curriculum, uh, grammar, primarily grammar curriculum. It is not just good. It is exceptionally good. It is really, really, really good. And uh, I want to be able to launch that because that's a thing that people, and it's inexpensive, and that's a thing that people can avail themselves of, uh, you know, in the privacy of their own homes or on their phones or whatever they want to do, uh, improve the command of the language. And then uh, that all by itself, I think, opens the door to all kinds of career opportunities and workforce growth. And quite frankly, for the region, economic development.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you know, Employers need workers, and they need workers that have skills. And it, when we narrow the population that we can draw from with any restrictions, we're we're really just hurting our economy. So I guess well, my I, yeah, my question.
1: I, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, no. Well, I was ahead.
0: gonna I was gonna ask you, um, you know, on a on a more like human level, uh, what have you seen sort of happening with some of your students? um in terms of like how are you engaging with them and how are you helping them through these these challenging times so that they can complete
1: so the probably the biggest issue in the short term here has been covid and so the the reaction to covid is has been um varied and in some cases um you know like everything else, so these reactions would exist on a continuum. So there are people on one end of the continuum who are like, it does, it's nothing, forget it, let's move on. There are people on the other end of the continuum who are dreadfully frightened and don't want to leave the house or, and, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't be or that they, they may not have underlying health concerns or, you know, people that they're taking care of or whatever. But there are people at that end of the continuum and then there are a bunch of people at some place in the middle there. So the biggest challenge has been to help people identify you know what's what's the best path forward for them, and still allowing them to be to be on the part of that continuum where they believe or they feel that they need to be. We've largely been able to do that, you know, uh, like in broad strokes by by having as much curriculum online in TEC stuff, um, uh, which enables a student to either be in class or be at, at home, either synchronously or asynchronously. So basically through electronic means, through technological means, to help them stay current. That's sort of though a very surface answer to your question because that's just, you know, uh, that doesn't address the core of your question, which I think is how do we keep how do we help them keep their motivation high? How do we help alleviate fears? How do we help them um, with the other major, more major elements that this has brought? So maybe I lost my job, maybe I lost access to housing, maybe people in my household are sick. Uh, maybe some of them are dreadfully sick. And for some, you know, the, the solutions, if if I can use that word, vary and are individual. And so what we tend to do is treat each of those students to the best that we can as an individual. We try to engage them individually. So that's their student experience advisors. That's their faculty members. Um, that's their deans. Um, and sometimes it's it's me or it's Dr. Collins or somebody else. Um, but everybody at Hodges University—that's sort of in our DNA. We we are open to our students. We want to talk to them, and to the extent that we can help them, we want to. Um, in some some cases, I mean, there is no good answer. If someone says, "I can't be in school right now because I have to stay home and take care of my children," because school now isn't starting till August the thirty-first, I I get that, and I I, mean, I can't say, "Well, you know, leave your kids alone. I'm sure they'll be fine." They put the Oreos on the top shelf and call it a day you know, you have to let those people go home and take care of their children. And so what that means, then, then our response is, okay, we're going to leave the door open to you for when you're able to come back.
0: Yes. It was challenging before, right, and and COVID's just added a whole other
1: layer. Yeah. 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 No, it was challenging before, and it's been challenging. And I I was just having a conversation with somebody else the other day about this very thing. I think every time you saw the GDP numbers that came out yesterday – Every time there's economic upheaval, every time there's a recession, I mean, you can't pick up the newspaper without finding bad economic news right now. Um, Organizations downsize, people lose their jobs, and then when the economy begins to recover, what organizations do, uh, like any rational uh, entity would do, is they're going to tend to bring people back slowly and see what they can do so that, what it means is they may not return to their pre-crisis, whatever the crisis was, level of employment, particularly if they realize they can do substantially the same thing with fewer people. So I think what I've seen over the course of my life anyway is that each time there's been one of these things, the, when we recover, however you choose to define that, every, the people who are, who are uh, in, engaged in that recovery, working through that recovery, end up working a little bit harder, uh, a little bit more out taking on a little bit more responsibility, doing a little bit extra work or part of somebody else's job. And before you know, I mean, that, that's fine once or twice or three times, but before you know that, it really adds up. And so now what I think you're finding is people are, apart from COVID and every other thing, there's this additional stress layer overarching everything where people have very little free time anymore. They're working all the time. They're not necessarily seeing the rewards of the labor that their parents or grandparents would have seen. Uh, in their day, and and they may not be able to put their fingers on it and say, I'm I'm not getting out of this what I should, but that doesn't mean they don't feel it. And I think they do feel it.
0: Yeah, quality of life, right, and your ability to yeah. even – and then the, the implications of that in terms of being creative or being able to innovate or being able to to add to your learning to become a more relevant and helpful employee, it's all challenged by those things.
1: Well, it is. And there's a fatigue that overarches all of this, too. So you don't, you're not at your most creative. You're not at your most open-minded. And you're certainly not at your most um, academically prepared if you are fatigued.
0: Absolutely. So, so I'm going to ask you a question. And you've, you've touched on a lot of these things. And so you may bring, your answer may include some of the things that you've already mentioned. But, you know, you've been part of the Future Makers Coalition for, from the beginning. And, uh, you know, we have this goal of increasing the number of workers that have a credential post-high school in southwest Florida to 55% by the year 2025. And that's a big goal. And while we've, we've increased by almost 31,000 uh, skilled workers since we started, which is those are workers that stay here. We're not counting just the degrees that are earned here and people that leave, that's a, that's a huge accomplishment, but obviously with population growth and with the challenges that our region faces, we're just not moving fast enough. But from your standpoint and sort of the things that the world that you operate in in higher ed, what are some of the key things that you think need to change uh, quickly in order for us to really start to up, reskill, upskill, um, and get folks to where they need to be in order to have um, better jobs?
1: Okay so be, before I answer the second part let me just comment on the first part the um, the future makers coalition has been a huge thing and i, I think um, for maybe for you because you're you are like at the complete center of the thing but for anybody involved in it, it may not necessarily appreciate how big a thing it's been so yes we have this goal and yes we have some work to do to get to the goal but look how far we've come since we started. And and, and the successes aren't measured only in the numbers of uh, people who've attained the credentialing or the percentage increase in, in, in that credentialing area or things like that. It, it's also been in the um, look how successful this has been at bringing people in the region together, entities in the region together that uh, heretofore might not have been, they wouldn't have been enemies or anything, but they might not have been as Cooperative, or might not even have understood what each of each faced. So, using um, our industry, higher education, as an example, um, it is so nice to be able to have FSW and FGCU and Kaiser and Nova be able to have to work together and talk about things together and design things together. And uh, that's not a thing that occurs in a lot of the rest of the country. It, it does in pockets, but it's not a it's not the the normal natural course of events. So I think, you know, you are, we are to be congratulated for having accomplished that. That's no small feat. So then on to the the second part, which is what do we need to do? I think um, we need to do all the things we've talked about so far. I think your question was what do we need to do quickly? So I think the quickly thing can be addressed by uh, deepening those relationships, by having more employer higher ed or employer uh, technical college kinds of interactions. Uh, We did things like build an articulation agreement with Arthrex for some of the training that they're doing out in Ave Maria. I I think there's any number of opportunities for things like that. And those are relatively easy to do. They're quick to execute. They're extremely low cost to to execute. In fact, essentially zero cost. So those kinds of things could be done uh, on a much grander scale. But that's that's going to move the needle and, and it's going to move it nicely and, and it's going to be good. But I think the, the big bad wolf here is what do we want is a national question. What do we want higher education to be? What are we prepared to um, ask our higher education institutions to do? And as employers or as a society, what are we prepared to accept as a as this uh, alternative credentials. So if it isn't a micro credentialing and, and and it isn't a degree, what is it? We have to give it a name, and we have to we have to all agree that that it's a thing, that it's a legitimate thing, and what, that we're going to accept it and value it. Uh, I don't think that gets delineated in credit hours. I just I just don't. I don't. I think that takes too long. So I don't know if that's helpful or not, but I think it's a it's a much bigger discussion than just regionally. Now that is not to say that we couldn't create the model. And advance it nationally. I'm all all about that, um, and, and we might do that very thing. But I think that's the discussion.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, the world has changed much more quickly than our systems have, and I think that until we're ready to to take some risks together and sort of share the, the, the risk together. We probably won't see the changes that we want. Well, I just, I want to thank you for your time. Um, I know you're, you're busy trying to adapt and pivot right now and you are doing a fantastic job. It is always a pleasure to talk to you. You said here to four, which is like fantastic. Um, you, you gotta love it when someone uses that. <laughs> but well, this
1: is—I enjoy. It. Thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this, and uh, it is always a pleasure to speak with you. And uh, even when you're when we're in this kind of a setting, I end up—I always end up leaving thinking about something in a different way or getting a different idea from having spoken to you. So, um, thank you
0: The feeling is mutual, and um, so so keep in touch and, and have a great day.
1: All you too, Tessa. Thanks. Bye-bye.